sin offering. Leviticus chapter 4, we're going to be doing the sin offering tonight. A lot of stuff to go over, a lot of stuff to go over. So um, let's go ahead and have a quick word of prayer and we'll jump right into this. Heavenly Fathers, we come to you now. We just pray that you would give us wisdom and guidance and direction in all things as we get into this area, Lord, that only you can explain on how this represents you, Lord, and what it applies to us. We just pray for our eyes to be open to this, and we pray, as always, Lord, you teach and we listen, Lord, in your name. Amen. Now, if this is the first time you've been with us here in the last uh, few weeks, we started the book of Leviticus. We're not going to do all the book of Leviticus. We're just going to do parts of it here. And we're going to definitely do these first five offerings. These are the first main offerings in the Old Testament. And if you weren't with us from the introduction a couple weeks ago, I'll just hit really quickly. These offerings represent Christ. Hebrews 9, 10, and 11 make it clear that these offerings are a picture of Jesus and what he did for us on the cross. And so for the first three offerings that we've done, we've done the burnt offering, the grain offering, and the peace offering. Those are all voluntary offerings that talked about our service to God, worship to God, and also us dedicating our entire life to God. But what we get here tonight now in the sin offering is these are no longer voluntary. These are now, you have sinned, and these offerings have to be made. So it changes here a little bit. It changes a lot, I should say, because the first three offerings as a voluntary offering really represented us and how we relate to Jesus. Here with the sin offering, this is really a picture of Christ. And as we go through all of this, we're going to go through and just talk about the pure facts of it, from an Old Testament point of view, once we get done with it, then we'll go back and talk about how this applies to us and how this is a picture of Jesus. So, with that being said, Leviticus chapter 4, verse 1 now says, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel. If a person sins unintentionally, or for you good old King James, there's out there, it talks about an ignorance, against any of the commandments of the Lord, and anything which ought not to be done, and does any of them. So, this is now a sin. You've done something wrong. This has now been brought to your attention. You know you've done wrong. Now you have to go do a sacrifice. Verse 3, if the anointed priest sins, bringing guilt on the people, then let him offer to the Lord for his sin, which he has sent a young bull without blemish, a sin offering. First point there, if a priest sins, he needs to offer up a bull. If you're taking notes there, first thing, if a priest sins, he has to offer up a bull. What does he do with this bull? Verse 4, he brings it to the tabernacle. We've talked about this before. He puts his hand on the bull's head. He kills the bull. Then he takes some of the blood in verse 5. Now, this is where it gets interesting. Verse 6, the priest shall dip his finger in the blood, sprinkle some of the blood seven times before the Lord in front of the veil of the sanctuary. There was this big veil that was back there in the tabernacle. So the priest would go and sprinkle some blood on this. He would do this seven times. Continuing on here, verse 7, the priest should put some of the blood on the horns of the altar. And uh should have put the picture up here again because I forgot about it, but we have this altar that we've talked about for the last month. This altar, once again, that is huge, uh, about four and a half foot tall, if I remember correctly, about seven by seven. And on each corner of the altar, they have these little horns that come out. And so what they're saying now with the sacrifice is some of this blood has to be put on the horns now of that altar, verse 7. And so as you put it on the horns of the altar of sweet incense before the Lord, which is in the tabernacle of meeting, he shall pour the remaining blood of the bull at the base of the altar of the burnt offering, which is at the door of the tabernacle of the meeting. So blood is sprinkled before the veil. Blood is put on the altars of the, uh, excuse me, on the horns of the altar. And then the rest of it is poured at the base of it. You can see the emphasis on blood here, which is a lot different than the other sacrifices. What happens next? Verse 8, he shall take from it all the fat of the bull as a sin offering, the fat that covers the entrails and all the fat which is on the entrails. Verse 9, the fat that's on the kidneys, by the flanks, etc. All the fat is removed. 
And that fat that removed, verse 10, was taken from the bull of the sacrifice of the peace offering, and the priest shall burn them on the altar of the burnt offering. All the fat is cut out of the animal, is now burnt on the altar. What about the rest of it? Verse uh, 11, But the bull's hide and all its flesh with its head and legs, etc., the whole bull he shall carry outside the camp to a clean place where the ashes are poured out and burnt on it with wood fire where the ashes are poured out shall be burned. Now that's the sacrifice. So as a priest, if a priest has done something wrong, he brings the bull in, the bull is killed, blood is sprinkled near the veil, blood is put on the horns of the altar, the rest of the blood is poured near the altar, you cut out all the fat out of the, uh, the entire animal, the fat is burned on the altar, the rest of the animal is taken outside the camp, and it's burned up outside the camp. That is what the sin offering is. Now, you see some comparisons there to some of the other offerings we've done. I have to share this, and I know I've shared this every time we've gone through. You, you cannot imagine how bloody of a mess this would have been. I mean, this is, this is pure butchering of an animal, of taking all the fat out of it. Blood is going to be everywhere. You have blood near the veil, blood near the altar, blood on the horns. Blood is everywhere. You've cut the animal open. You're now carrying a carcass of an animal outside the camp to be burned. The only thing that gets burned is the fat. The rest of the animal is taken completely outside the camp. So I don't know whose job that was to carry out the dead carcass, but that's what has to be carried out after this thing's already been cut up. It's just a literal bloody mess. That's what it is. So if a priest did this sin, a priest would have to go through this. Now, the rest of the chapter is basically the same, but there's some key points that we need to bring out about this. So let's move on here. Verse 13, if the nation sins, now if the whole congregation of Israel sins unintentionally, what do they have to do? Well, they have to do the same thing. The bulls have to be, a bull has to be uh, taken care of on their behalf. Look at verse 15. And the elders of the congregation shall lay their hands on the head of the bull before the Lord. Then the bull shall be killed before the Lord. Now I find this interesting. Two points on this. Number one, that if you're in leadership... You are responsible. I know that's a really silly point, but it seems like in today's society, the idea of being responsible for your own actions have gone out the window. We live in a society where if something bad happens, we like to pass the buck. Well, look at the elders here in verse 15. If the nation of Israel sins, they all have to go put their hands on this animal saying, we are guilty of this because we are the leadership of Israel and we allow this sin to continue. That's a pretty big point. What I also find interesting too is if the nation sins, verse 13, what's the sacrifice? A bull. If a priest sins, what's the sacrifice? A bull. God looks at the priesthood as being vitally important. Because if you continue down a little bit, verse 22, when a ruler has sinned and done something unintentional against any of the commandments of the Lord of his God, and anything which he should not be done is guilty, what is he supposed to do? Verse 23, he gets to bring a goat. Well, as you continue down here, so the male ruler brings a goat. Well, the next one in verse 27, if you're just a commoner, you get to do a female goat or a lamb. Well, into chapter 5, if you're even poorer or younger than that, you only have to do pigeons. Do you see how the sacrifices keep getting smaller and smaller and smaller? It goes from a, a bull to a, a male goat to a female goat to a lamb to pigeons. Now, everybody's important in the eyes of God. But what God is saying here, hey, priests, I expect more out of you. And so therefore, since I expect more out of you, your sacrifice is bigger because your sin carries more ramifications. Your sin is the same as the nation's sinning. Now, if a ruler sins, yeah, that's a big deal, that's important. A goat has to die. But it, you can see how the sacrifices step down here a little bit. Depending where you're at in society, depends on what happens. Some other little details about this before we move on. If you are a ruler in verse 22, no blood goes on the veil. You only do blood on the horns, you only do blood around the altar. And once again, verse 27, if you're a commoner, 
and you do the female goat or the lamb, no blood on the veil once again. Jump ahead to chapter 5 real quick. Verse 7, if you are very poor and you can't even afford a lamb, you have to bring two young pigeons, um, and those are going to be offered up in your sacrifices. And this is where it gets really interesting. And if you can't even afford that, you get to, in verse 11, you have to bring flour. And your flour then is your sacrifice. Now note what the pigeons in verse 7, and excuse me, verse 9, you only put blood on the side. And you may say, well, why don't you have to do blood near the veil or on the horns on the other side? Not to be gross here, there's not as much blood in the birds. You don't have as much blood to go around. Uh, as you have a smaller animal, you have less blood, so therefore the blood only goes a few places. Um, verse 11, if you can't even afford animals, you have flour. Now, no oil, no frankincense, and the leftovers get to go to the priests. A few more points about this. This is the biggest sacrifice. There's a lot of information before we get the application. Because if you're sitting here saying, okay, I'm giving up Wednesday evening and I'm getting nothing out of this, trust me, we're going to get to the other stuff here. What? Get to the rest of the facts here real quick. In chapter 6, what you have here now and the rest of it is in chapter 6, verses 24 through 30, just a couple other quick points about this. The priests get the leftovers. Priests get some of the leftover meat. It's also important to note in verse 27, if blood got on any of the clothes, those clothes had to be washed in the tabernacle. If the priest took any of the food, that food had to be eaten in the tabernacle. Verse 28, if any of the blood got on earthen vessels, meaning if the priest took this food and started cooking it, whatever earthen vessel, whatever clay pot they cooked in had to be destroyed once they got done cooking it. And if you used a, uh, a bronze pot, if you will, there in verse uh, 28, you had to scour it and clean it thoroughly to get all the blood off. That's what you used if you had to cook it. So a lot of details here. So real quick, depending on your place in society, depends on your sacrifice. Priest, you got to offer a bull. Congregation of Israel, bull. A ruler, a male goat. A commoner, it's either going to be a lamb or a female goat. Poorer than that, birds. Poorer than that, flower. Blood is going to be sprinkled at least near the veil, possibly on the horns of the altar. The rest of the blood is dumped near the altar. If you're sacrificing the bird, it's only smeared on the side. Uh, the priests get to take part of this food home with them but they have to eat it there in the tabernacle area. If any blood gets on any clothes, those clothes have to be washed in the tabernacle area. If the priests cook in clay pots, those clay pots have to be destroyed once they cooked with it. And then if you used a bronze pot, that pot had to be scoured and cleaned, so therefore no blood remained on it. That's the sin offering. That's a pretty big deal. Now, we know already where this is going. It's a picture of Christ. But back for them, they didn't know that. That's a pretty big deal. Now, now once again... It comes down to the point that we've said every week. If you're living back 3,000 years ago, four, I should say you know, 4,000 years ago, and this happens, first off, you have the financial implications of you are buying an animal to be killed. You have the time implications of you're going to be butchering this animal for a decent chunk of the day. You also have just the, how should I word it? It's going to be a bloody mess. I don't know how else to say that. This is going to be a sacrifice. Hence, it's a sacrifice. Now, you may be thinking, okay, well, what would have to happen in my life for me to have to go through this? Well, Leviticus 5 gives at least four examples here to show you why you would do this sacrifice. Uh, Leviticus 5, verse 1, the first example is maybe you're called to testify under oath, and you know the truth of what you should say, but you don't say it, so therefore you'd be guilty. Uh, verse 2 is you touch a dead body. You would have to go through this sacrifice. Verse 3, you touch anything unclean. Um, I don't know, maybe you shake hands with somebody who had leprosy and you didn't know it, something along that type of line. Uh, verse 4, this is the one that would probably get us uh, speaking words rashly, making promises that you didn't keep. 
That'd really make you think about what you say on a daily basis, wouldn't it? Hey, I promise you I'll be there by sunset. You promise me? Yeah, I promise you I'll be there tomorrow. I'll help you. That's a pretty big word now. See, it's amazing how in today's society we throw words out left and right. We make promises, we make oaths, we say rash words all the time. There's no ramification for those words. Well, Old Testament, if you made a promise like that, you made an oath to a person, and you start speaking, as it says in my translation, verse 4, thoughtlessly. Boy, I, I would have killed a lot of animals in my 33 years of my life. Because it really makes you more responsible for what you're thinking of. So that is the physical, factual side of what the sin offering is. Big deal. Once again, from an Old Testament perspective, you kind of sit there and scratch your head and say, God, this is, this is what you want? That's what he wants. Now, before we get into what it means for us and what it represents for us, does anybody have any quick questions, comments about the factual side? Yeah, John. Let me write that down real quick. No, I'm adding it now. There's nothing you can do. Veil of temple being ripped. Yes. No, we were... Well, yeah, same veil to the extent of they're, they're talking about the tabernacle, whatever would been the veil of the temple, but yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. Well, what would happen there, that's what I think that really is more of an example of is a heart of a father. There's one more offering, and that's the trespass offering, which we're going to get into next week, and that is an offering of restitution if someone has done something wrong. But I think what you see there more with Job is you have the heart of a father that just wanted to say, hey, God, in case my kids did something that was wrong and they're not ready or willing to admit it or see it, I'm doing this on their behalf. That's kind of what it was. Does that work today? Well, no, it doesn't work today. But just like we know the blood of bulls and goats don't take away sin, it's Christ. So I think what you're kind of saying is how can somebody else offer a sacrifice for somebody else? That's what you're kind of saying. Well, what it seems to be in the Old Testament, especially in the case of Job, it's not that God didn't care about the heart because we've shown he does care about the heart, but it was more of the sin just had to be covered up to start with. The equivalent to me almost would be in this off the top of my head. Um, my kid gets picked up for speeding, but I go pay the ticket on his behalf. Court is just happy that it has been taken care of. They really don't care where the money comes from. In some instances, God is saying, yes, that person sinned. I'm just happy that the blood of the bull and goat has covered that sin. That's what it's more like about right now. But in the perfect world, it should have been the person offering it because their heart really wasn't in the right spot to start with. But let's just be honest. And I don't know, we can't go back in time to tell. How many people offered sin offerings 3,000, 4,000 years ago whose heart wasn't in it? I did something wrong. Animal has to die. You know, God wants the heart, but there's no way to prove that right now. Does that make sense? Does anybody else have any other quick questions, comments here? Yeah, Mom. Yes. From, from what secular sources say is that a lot of times in this tabernacle, it was almost a um, factory line type feel of just go up, and that's what they did all morning from, from sun, sun up to sundown was just sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice. People would line up just to do it. I mean, in fact, they say with Christ, when it came to the Passover lamb, that said supposedly that around Jerusalem, that when so many lambs are sacrificed, that they, they actually the streams would run red in blood because there was so much killing you know, going on. And so from what they say from secular sources is that that's what these people did all day is they just sacrificed animals, which is really supposed to be a picture of us with Christ. That was the whole thing in the book of Hebrews where it says these people daily offer sacrifices, ministering, let me read you the verse there in Hebrews to show the difference between what God did and what they did. It says right here, Every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. And that's Hebrews 10:11, carrying this idea of that's just what happened all day as these, these priests just were sacrificing animal after animal after animal. 
and that was just the daily thing of what they did on a regular basis back then. So I think what you're kind of saying is with all these people and all this stuff going on, wouldn't it just constantly be people dying, I mean, animals dying left and right, right? Yeah, that's what it was. Well, but you've got to be careful, though, because I, I think if you look at the wording, it doesn't say the veil itself. Uh, it says the blood is sprinkled before the Lord in front of the veil in verse 6. It doesn't say necessarily that the blood got on the veil, but it's sprinkled, sprinkled before the veil, if that's what it says. But yeah, that's the whole point, is if you read any of... Um, Oh, what's the book I'm thinking of? Not Haley's. Haley's Bible Commentary is pretty good, but there's another book that I read where it goes into the details here where it just talks about how it was almost this um, factory line type feel of sacrifices, which to the point of why Jesus got ticked off in the New Testament is because these people came and they could set up shop there and make all this money off these animals and these sacrifices because it became this this type of feel. So anybody else have any other questions, comments about Yeah, Kathy. Well... On the altar, no one would have come up and cleaned up because that would have kept burning. That was the whole point of that, with the burning there. And so the blood would have been constantly on there. The question I have, and I'll be honest about this, the blood that was sprinkled before the veil, I always kind of wondered about that. You know, I mean, I don't know how much blood was there because if you're dipping your finger in the blood and you're doing seven times, not a lot of, what's, I'm not trying to be gross here, there's not going to be a lot of blood. I mean, if you're just dipping your finger in and just going seven times, it's not like the floor is going to be covered, per se. But no, I, there's nothing in there about going up and cleaning up uh, before the veil there. Um, I thought that same thing when I was reading there. Was after a while, this is really just going to become quite the mess. Now, with the rest of the blood and the offerings, that stuff would have been burnt up. And that fire was going nonstop. So that would have been a hot enough fire that that would have kept burning it up and taking care of it there. Yeah, Rose. Well, didn't they keep Yeah, the tabernacle kept constantly getting moved, too. There would be some truth, too, yeah. If you're constantly moving around, um, there would be a lot of stuff going on. And this doesn't even count the daily sacrifices that are going on a regular basis, too. I mean, to me, it's almost mind-blowing when you really think about what they went through on a daily basis back there just to have a... I, I, I can't even say they have a relationship with God because this is hardly a relationship with God. This is just a covering of sin. I mean, this is why it's so vital, like John alluded to earlier, when the veil of the temple was torn to show complete access to Jesus... My goodness. I mean, it says in Hebrews, we can boldly come before the throne of grace. Uh, if you look back to what they had to do just to have a, their sin to be covered, it, it's an amazing thing. And this happened just repeatedly again and again and again and again. Hey, Megan. No, no, the Holy Spirit obviously was around, but the Holy Spirit did not indwell them like it indwells us. But at the same time, too, we also have a tendency to take for granted God's presence living inside of us, too. And, uh, you know, once again, we, we think about sacrifice of Christ, the closest we come to that is communion. And communion is a very clean thing. I mean, yes, it's supposed to be the picture of blood. It's supposed to be a picture of the bread being broken into pieces to be the body of Christ. But the truth of the matter is, it's, it's so clean compared to what they went through. In the day. I mean, this one really got me today when I'm thinking about this bull or, you know, even a lamb or a goat, this thing is killed. It's now butchered. You cut all the fat out. But someone has to haul the hide, the head, the legs, the entrails out of the camp. Somebody's hauling dead animals on a regular basis outside the camp. It is just a, a bloody mess that went on back then, and it, it's just a bloody mess. Would you just stop? Seriously. I mean, well, what's the point anymore? Yes, Hebrews 13, verses 11 through 13. Yes, we we're going to get to that point. Yeah, you did. Yes, it's symbolic of Christ being taken outside of Jerusalem to be crucified. So, anybody else want to jump ahead here? Yes, Mom. 
I can't snap at you. That's a good point. You know, it doesn't say for sure who took the it doesn't say for sure who took the dead animals out. It may have been the person that was offering the sacrifice to start with, too. That may that may have been part of it too. It just says, um, no, I I think it read I'm rereading this in verse twelve. The whole bull he shall carry outside. It looks like the person that offered the sacrifice had to carry it out themselves. Which makes sense. I mean, you're the one that did it, you're the one that killed the animal, you're the one making the mess, you've got to clean up after yourself. So um, yeah, he'd be the one that actually did it himself there, according to verse 12. That's a good question. Though. All right, anybody else got anything here? Now let's talk about how it represents, even though we've already given away a couple points. Um, obviously, it's a picture of Christ. There's no way around that. If you're taking notes, just a couple verses to throw at you. First one is 2 Corinthians 5.21. 2 Corinthians 5.21. He that knew no sin became sin for us. That, that's a key verse here. He who knew no sin became sin for us. This sacrifice of sin offering is a picture of Jesus who did absolutely nothing wrong. Hence, the repeated references to the lamb or the bull without spot or blemish. Which then takes us to our next verse, 1 Peter 1.19, 1 Peter 1.19, where it says Christ was the spotless lamb. Now, we all know that. Now, the rest of the details here is what gets interesting. As John alluded to there earlier in the Hebrews 13, where it says they had to be taken outside the camp, that is a picture of Christ, because Christ had to be crucified outside of Jerusalem. I'm just going to read the reference to you. It's Hebrews 13, 11 through 13. It says, For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered outside the gate. Therefore, let us go forth to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. So just as Christ was crucified outside the camp, outside of Jerusalem, Hebrews 13, so those animals were taken outside of the camp too. Now, I just tell you, I find that point absolutely fascinating. That God, thousands of years ago, when he ordained this sacrifice, it is such a picture of Christ. The, the spotless lamb that was slain, picture of Jesus. Blood that, that took care of sin. Picture of Jesus. The, the body taken outside. Picture of Jesus. You just see how it just keeps on picking up more and more picture of Christ. Going even to the sacrifice. The priest have the bull all the way down to the porch of the poor offering flour. Jesus died for absolutely everybody. No matter what state you're in right now, Christ died for you. It always blows my mind when I'm sharing the gospel with somebody and they can't get past that point of why would Jesus do it. Jesus did it for everybody. It doesn't matter if you're offering a bowl or flower. No matter what state you're in, he died for you. He died for everybody. What's our response to this? Well, when I look through the sin offering, I think our response is we're the earthen vessels. That's my personal opinion. In 2 Corinthians 4, 7, Paul comes right out and says that that's what we are, are actually earthen vessels. Let me read that passage to you real quick. 2 Corinthians 4, 7. We have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellence of the power may be of God and not us. So if we're an earthen vessel, what does it mean to be broken? Well, remember in Luke 20, Jesus came right out and said, Hey, you either fall on me and you're broken, or I fall on you and crush you. That's really the only two options you have in life. And when you're witnessing with somebody, it comes down to two things. Either you give your life willfully to Christ and you're broken, or you reject Jesus and he says, fine, in the final judgment, I fall on you and crush you in judgment. Well, we're a picture, I believe, of that earthen vessel. Paul says we're an earthen vessel in 2 Corinthians 4, 7, and so therefore I need to be broken. That's the only way I can have a relationship with Christ is as a vessel, I am broken. That earthen vessel represents clay. Well, the Bible says I'm dust. And so therefore I have to be broken to have that re relationship with Jesus. And so therefore, as the blood gets in me, just as in the sacrifice, I have to be broken. 
truth of the matter is no one likes to be broken. Some of you are sitting here tonight, and you have areas that you are fighting God with on right now. And you don't want to be broken. I don't want to be broken. God says you have one of two options. Either I crush you, or you willfully break yourself. And as you break yourself, you realize now it's a picture of a sacrifice. See, when we throw that term out loud, you have to be broken. It sounds so harsh. It sounds so mean. No, go back and look at the sin offering in Leviticus 5 there. To be broken, it's a beautiful thing. Because to be broken means that you have the blood of Christ in you. And as the blood of Christ is in you, you are now broken. You are part of the sacrifice. And that shows you have access to God. As we mentioned too, also earlier, when Jesus died on the cross, the veil of the temple was torn. And that temple, that veil being torn now shows we have access to God. Where I, you know, I studied up a little bit on that veil. That veil could have been up to about a foot and a half thick. And it was mixed with goat hair and all this other type of stuff. This was not, not something that just rips, okay? This was a, a God-ordained thing to show this being opened up and, and the access that we have now to God because behind the veil was the Ark of the Covenant. And so now we have complete access to God. And so that blood being sprinkled near the veil shows, foreshadows, I should say, the sacrifice and what it's going to do. Because if I was a priest thousands of years ago, and I'm sacrificing this animal, I'm dipping my finger in the blood, going up to that veil and sprinkling seven times, which if you study out anything in the Bible, seven always represents completion in the Bible. So I'm, I'm dipping my finger and sprinkling seven times. I'm probably thinking, why? Well, now thousands of years later, that blood shows access to God because the veil is torn and we, the blood of Jesus is what gives us access to get in there. A beautiful, beautiful picture. The one thing that really convicted me while going through this message also is the sacrifice for the priest is the same sacrifice as for the nation. And we talked about how God looks at leadership and the importance of that. And it reminded me of that verse in the book of James, James 3.1. It says that not many of you become teachers because you will receive a stricter judgment. God says, hey, if you're going to stand up and serve me in that type of capacity, God says, I ask a lot more out of you. Those priests, they did the same sin as the poor person or the commoner or the whatever, but they're sacrificing a bull where someone else could get away with a pigeon. God says, I expect more out of you if you are in any type of leadership position, if you're in any type of spiritual authority position, I expect more out of you. And that's something that weighs heavy on the heart because you stop and say, okay, Lord, I want then to be, and I use this term lightly, worthy of you because I want to present your truth not only in words but also in the lifestyle that we live. You know, one of the things that we always say out here is if you want to serve, that's great. But as you serve, more is expected. You're, you're being a picture of Christ. And you may be, well, I'm just helping back in the nursery. Well, you're showing the love of Jesus to those babies. That's an important gift. That's an important assignment. And we want to make sure that people understand the ramifications of that and the importance of that. Once again, James 3.1, that not many of you become teachers, so you receive a stricter judgment. So this sin offering, it's an obvious picture of Christ, a flawless sacrifice, his blood being shed for us. But there's so much deeper meaning there. The animal being taken out of the camp represents Jesus dying outside of Jerusalem. The earthen vessels that are being broken represents us being broken in Christ through his blood. The, the veil, the blood near the veil, represents the veil being ripped and torn. The sacrifices being from the priests all the way down to the poor people. Jesus died for absolutely everybody. The priest having the same sacrifice as the nation of Israel represents the, the responsibility that's in the priesthood of representing that. It's a beautiful picture of Jesus. It's a beautiful picture of our relationship to him. And it really reminds you of what Christ went through for you and I. We, we almost become so desensitized that Jesus died on the cross. He died on the cross. No, he was a sin offering that was torn to pieces. 
His blood has given me entrance into heaven. And when you read through Leviticus 4 and Leviticus 5 and part of Leviticus 6, you really start to see what it means for Christ that is your sacrifice. He is your sacrifice for sins, and you really start to get a picture of this. Now, bring it full circle. Back then, it made you think about your words, made you think about your promises, made you think about what you did and said here in verses 1 through 4 of uh, Leviticus 5. Because if you did something wrong, said something wrong, you're going to be killing an animal for the rest of your day. How much nowadays, realizing how much more important the sacrifice of Jesus was, boy, shouldn't we watch what we say and do? I know that's a pretty simple point. But if God says, hey, those callous words resulted in the death of an animal, my callous words resulted in the death of Christ. And I want to make sure that I am not letting my words and actions be disrespectful to what Christ did on the cross. We really want that to be a picture of our sacrifice to him goes back to our first sacrifice, the burnt offering. Lord, I give you everything I have to you. Totally consume me so that way I may be serving you completely and fully in whatever I say and do. So you see the physical side of this, but more importantly, you see the spiritual side of it and how it represents Christ. Do you have any final questions, comments about the spiritual side or the physical side that we may have missed um, that you want to bring up here before we close up? Yeah, John. Where was he when he was whipped and beaten? Uh, one of them was, wasn't it Solomon's uh, porch, part of the temple? See, the problem, it, it's, it's a tough one because what happened was Herod, they had the original Solomon's temple, and then, you know, obviously that got destroyed by the Babylonians, and so they went and rebuilt the temple later on. The problem was Herod came and took the temple and added so much to it. So there's all these places that there's referred to in the New Testament, which was not part of the original temple plan. Herod really made this his project to make it big and beautiful. So a lot of the places that are mentioned there are actually not part of the temple. It would have been in the complex that was all around the temple. But I believe some of it happened in uh, Solomon's porch off the top of my head. So anybody else have anything they want to say before we close up? All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to you, uh, we look at this sacrifice. We look at what it represents. Lord, our response is supposed to be the earthen vessels. Um, we're broken. Lord, we just want to be broken for you. Your, your blood touches us, and we want to be broken for you. And I just pray if there's someone here tonight that's struggling with a sin, that's just bringing them down, Lord, I pray that in your love, you'd break them to, to show them, Lord, what you did and what you did for them on the cross. Lord, if there's someone here tonight that just is maybe not struggling with a sin, but just struggling with just anything in life, Show them, Lord, you're there from them from beginning to end. And, Lord, that they need to be broken, maybe emotionally, spiritually, just to trust you, Lord. And just as those vessels get in contact with you, they're broken, but they're broken in love. Lord, we want to be those earthen vessels, serving you, loving you, and all that we say and do. We lift this up in your name, in the name of Jesus. Amen. We have one more.